Hello everybody and welcome back to What's The Story podcast. My name is Danny Murray. And I am Graham Merrigan. How are you, Danny? How, how have you been? I haven't haven't seen you or spoke to you. We haven't spoken about six months or sorry, yeah. six weeks. So yeah. I, I don't know how you how you are or I'm only joking. Yeah, no, I'm, back. I'm yeah, it's, it's good to be back, man. Don't back be for a week. <laughs> back back for a week, then on holidays again. Um, you know, but look, that that's the podcast business, Graham. That's how it works now. There's too many out there, which is great in one sense, but also the market is oversaturated. So, you know. That's our excuse. That's our excuse and we're sticking to it. We've got lives. We just do our own thing now. It's not like years ago. Go anyway. at our own pace. You know, uh, but yeah, look, it's been good, man. Yeah, last time we spoke, I was I was heading off my holidays. Holidays have been and gone. You know, life, life was a great bad. time. I did, yeah. You know, went on some roller coasters. Absolutely ruined me underwear in the process. Um, but it was great fun did, all the time. Did you go on the, the rocket in Universal? No. Where you pick your song? Uh, no, I, I didn't get to do the rocket because when we, no, when we queued up Howard. for it, Will you let me explain, Graham? Sorry. If you will, please. Will you let me finish, please? Yeah. Let me finish, please. Yeah, coward. Um, it was suspended due to lightning in the area. Oh, no way. Yeah, I was raging. Um, I did do Hulk. I done the Velocicoaster, the Jurassic Park one. And that was, honest to God, man, the best. And if my wife's listening, I'm sorry, but that was the best 60 seconds of my life. <laughs> the Hulk amazing though. Oh, the Hulk's deadly. No, the Hulk was there. Me and Carl, me and Carl went on the Hulk uh, uh, in the dark, and it was amazing. Ah, oh, class. Yeah, that would yeah. be good now. Yeah. Um, me and Jenza went on the what's it called again? I always get the name the Riptoid Rocket. Riptoid Rocket. And um, yeah. me and my mother sat in the front row for Riptoid Rocket. Ah, deadly. Yeah, and 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 just as we were taking off, my, my mother Jenza was like, uh, "Oh my god, am I on? Is, is this?" Is this working? Am I, am I, this is this is loose. Turn away to give it a bit of looseness, yeah. a bit of give. And yeah. uh, sure, we were halfway up the 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 the, the, the oak, and she, I was like, "Ma'am, no looking back now." That's I it. You're in it. I sabotage from my song. Nice. You nice. went on itself. So. Oh, what? No, as I said, we were myself. It was myself and Jono actually were in the queue, and uh, then the the siren went up for lightning in the area, and the ride was suspended. And um, I checked the weather app real quick and the forecast was for thunder and lightning in the area for the next two hours. I was like, I'm not standing here for two hours. So, um, but yeah, yeah, it was good. It was, we went to Did the Universal Universal once. No, we were there for like, I think it was like, we done one park one day, one park another day, kind of, you know what I mean? Like we were there for, I think three days in total in Universal. Um, right. We done the Halloween Horror Nights. Uh, Deadly, I loved it. I know you didn't really like it, or you didn't like the queuing, but the queuing. I can appreciate that the queuing is, it is. You know, you need to have the, patience. But I, the, I just, I thought it was one of the best experience in my life. The visuals and the the characters and all that were absolutely amazing. They were absolutely, mm. like I have to say, like from that point of view, and just walking around the place with the special effects and all, deadly. But the queues, like mental. It was, it was just stupid. Like it, it was less of a queue during the day to go on. Even the Harry Potter roller coasters, which are the ones that are like the biggest queue times and all that. Yeah. But, uh, look, great holiday. Really enjoyed it. Um, I've already got onto a builder to see about how I get a swimming pool put into my garden here in Port Leash. <laughs> um, two two weeks living in a gaff for a swimming pool, man, just changes you. You know. <laughs> yeah. So, 
Uh, my neighbours aren't too happy about me wandering around in a speedo. But listen, uh, you know, Florida changed me. So, but yeah, uh, very quickly, um, and we're the, the, kind of on point for what we're talking about. Um, did, did you watch the Beckham documentary? I did. What did you make of it? Um, I enjoyed it as I was watching it. Like it was, yeah. it was nostalgic. It was. Yeah. I, I liked David Beckham as a footballer. Um, I thought he was an, an excellent, excellent footballer. I thought I, I like Netflix. I like Netflix documentaries. Mm-hmm. I like their programming. Um, a lot of the time, my criticisms of Netflix is that some of their documentaries are an episode too long, and I just felt the Beckham one was an episode too long. It did, yeah, it felt felt like it could have been three, quite repetitive. Yeah. I think what I didn't like about and I get it, like I get why it wasn't, but I just I would have liked it to have been a little bit tougher on him. Yeah. Well, it was a PR and piece. It was. And and it gets weird because I I've, he, he comes across very likable. He comes across a nice guy, but then I'm kinda also like, you know, his I mean they, they kind of touched on the affair issue and his infidelity. You know. But but they touched on it, but you're kind of still left. I text you and I text Brock and I said, are we to take that, David Brock, not Mark, yeah. are, are we to take it that um, he he did it or he didn't? But, then, like, but it's it's not just the one issue with uh, Rebecca Luce, which was the one that they heavily alluded to, but there's been lots of stories of infidelity and I'm not, I, I don't know if he did or not. Has there been lots of stories of infidelity? Oh yeah, yeah, there's lots. Well, of I thought it was just Rebecca Luce. No, I wasn't there a story with him uh, on a stag do. Uh, and there was the whole thing with Australian strippers, and there's lots of them over the years. And again, I, I for for legal reasons, I will be clear. I have no proof whatsoever. He may or may not have engaged, and he says he hasn't. And I have to take that at face value. Uh, but there's plenty of other stories out there if you want to Google it. Um, but also, I just thought I would have liked. I would have liked of maybe he being asked about his arrangement with Qatar. Exactly see, what I was thinking. Like to. he was. A, 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 a cover boy a cover man so to speak for a, for a gay magazine you know yeah. and there's no, there's no gay rights in Qatar but like th- this is my thing with it right he gets wheeled out in Qatar for everything right yeah. I mean the, the F1 is in Qatar David Beckham is there there's a bit of football in Qatar David Beckham is there they yeah. open a Starbucks in Qatar David Beckham is there like he's he is it, it wasn't mentioned at all Nothing at all mentioned about it. And I just thought that was interesting because he's obviously on a wedge from them. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it just with the World Cup and everything else, and it just felt a bit kind of like they're not, they're not it trying. felt like one episode too long. And then when you, you could have used for your, there was four episodes, it was one episode too long for your fourth episode. You actually could have just asked them about Qatar. Yeah. You know, you could have asked them about the criticism. The 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 Joe Lissett um stuff comedian Joe yeah. Lissett's addressing yeah like I just what what why ignore it like it's out there you're mm-hmm. you're trying to do this expose documentary never seen before documentary doesn't shy away from certain topics type of documentary but in actual fact it it didn't it didn't touch the topics a lot of people don't get enjoyed about it but I yeah, mean just I was expecting. Away. I was expecting it to be brought up at least, and I was expecting for him to deal with it poorly. But as I was still expecting for him to to take the box and, and bring it up, that's I was the same. I I did think that would happen, and then it didn't. And then I noticed as well how they didn't touch on his uh, his spoiled brat attitude around around not being awarded a knighthood. That's conveniently 
washed out of history. Exactly, well. yeah, yeah. But well, anyway, um, look, look, having said that as well, like I thought he was disgracefully treated after the World Cup in '98, and absolutely, back, like I remember at the time being infuriated by it, um, to be like to, to treat someone like that, um. You know, I, I thought that treatment was absolutely disgraceful. And when you go retrospectively back um, on British tabloid journalism in the 90s and, and early 90s, That's when you look at the George Michael documentary on Channel 4, where they outed him, um, and, you know, the, the, the disgraceful harassment, the harassment that Beckham's had for a fucking, uh, for a sending off, like. And then Glenn Hoddle, as manager... Oh yeah, basically blaming Beckham for not got progressing in the World Cup. Am I? Am I also right in saying? And I'm jumping a little bit here. Didn't Glenn Hoddle make some absolutely outrageous remarks about yeah, people with disabilities? People like me. Yeah. yeah, except people like me did wrong in a previous life to be dealt with this hand in their existing life. And and yet, and he gets full time work all the time. He's always on TNT. Yeah. He's always commentating. Uh, you know, he, he's an absolute bell end. A bit of a flute. Of the Remember, he brought your one island jury into the English camp to heal them. But no, do you remember that? No, that's where he got. I I believe that's where he got his ideology about disabled people. That's from insane. I believe he got um a lot of his I, um beliefs from her and and thinking, yeah. oh yeah, people with disabilities, they must have they must have done wrong in a previous life to get the dealt the hand that they were dealt with. It's it's outrageous. I, I would he wasn't like cancelled. He wasn't cancelled. He wasn't. I I would like to hope. I I like to try and give people the benefit of the doubt, and I hope that he he no longer holds those views, and that he's a little bit older and wiser. But, he's never uh, asked. It, does he have? He's, got, he's gonna say, but nobody's putting those questions to him. So I guess uh, huh. we'll have to wait with bated breath for the answer on that one. Yeah. But speaking of sport being Qatar. a bit of a <laughs> and Qatar and all those things, our guest this week is investigative journalist and writer Kareem Zidane. And Kareem specialises in that murky water that is where the world of sport, power, politics and all those things intertwine. And he's going to give He's at the intersection of sports, power and politics. That's the one. Is that That's the blurb from his website? Uh, just from his Twitter bio. Yeah, well, there you go. That's why he's the writer and I'm not because that's how you phrase these things rather than me rambling incoherently looking for words in the dark I am looking for words in the dark that's it anyway enough of me enough of you let's get to the man who knows what he's talking about the wonderful Kareem Zidane Kareem thanks for your time man do appreciate it oh it's an absolute pleasure thanks for having me on guys and yeah. you're a very brave man Kareem I think that's fair to say in, in your work <laughs> you know I think uh, over the years People have said that to me regularly, especially back when I used to go do all these trips to Russia. Honestly, I think uh, I look back on it and a lot of it, I just say I just chalk up to being young and stupid. You know, <laughs> you're just so much more willing to do things and you don't think of consequences than truth be told. Right. But I mean, uh, with that being said, I don't think I'd change anything I've done or anything I've written in the past. So maybe, maybe, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, there's there's a lot we want to try to get through, but I suppose you, you've touched on Russia uh, kind of nice and early. So we'll, we'll start there because in many ways, it, it, it's it's still quite topical, but also just when you watch it all unfold, your experience being there, how 
How do you see the psyche of the Russian people in terms of what's going on with your lived experience being there? So I was I I caught a lot of flack at the start of the the, the Russia Ukraine war when Russia first invaded uh, Ukraine. There was immediately the 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 significant backlash against Russia, which is completely understandable. I mean, Putin is a warmonger, and it should be stated as such. Absolutely. But the problem was is that a lot of that reaction spilled over to uh, the Russian people itself and citizens who don't really have much of a say. You know, I mean, I grew up in Egypt where you don't really have voting rights. You know, your 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 opinions as a citizen means absolutely nothing. The Egyptian state was going to do whatever it felt like doing. And I mean, we had a revolution and it got us nowhere. You know, So this whole idea that, oh, you can suddenly protest and remove Putin and whatnot. I, I was there when Russians would take to the streets to protest. And guess what? They were arrested in thousands and nobody looked after the ones who were who were arrested. People just had to face jail time. So there has always been significant Russian opposition. When I used to go visit Russia, I mean, I did this for years, just for your, your listeners to know, uh, I, I was in Russia regularly between 2014 and 2017 doing a, a commentary, actually, for a Russian MMA promotion called M1 Global. And I was the, one of their English commentators at the time, uh, working alongside Ian Freeman, a, a UFC legend, actually. So I, I was there quite a bit, but a lot of the Russians I spoke to we're against the war at this time. At this point, there was no war, so, so to say, but they were against the incursions into the Donbass. They were against the annexation of Crimea. This wasn't something that was unanimously supported by by Russians. I understand that over the years, things have changed and the propaganda has been just so overwhelming. The backlash against Russians has led to this sort of uh, re repositioning of, of, of some fascist roots in there and some ultra nationalist uh, ideas, but that doesn't spread to the entire population in my eyes. I mean, I was there sitting down at tables, having dinner with Ukrainians and Russians discussing, you know, what's happening right now in Ukraine. And they were having very reasonable discussions at the time. This idea that everybody, uh, that the country is just full of fascists and, and warmongers is something I still to this day can't buy. Uh, it's the same argument that will be made against, you know, against me as an Egyptian one day. If Egypt was to take a decision militarily or something, why am I being held responsible for that decision, right? So well, this we, we see it now. We see it now present day with, with the whole, I'm, I'm, I'm jumping a bit, but the whole Israel-Palestine um, conflict, you know, mm-hmm. um, the Benjamin Netanyahu government aren't representative of the people. I mean, you look at the Jewish organizations who are demanding for peace, demanding for ceasefires. There was victims of, um, you know, the October 7th where uh, victims lost family and they're, they're, they're pleading with Benjamin Netanyahu, not in my name. So it's, we see this all over the world um, with, with stuff like that. And and it's all the same. It roots in kind of a bit of a fascism, a bit of ultra orthodox in, in, in the religion. And where does it go? But sorry for cutting across you, but it, it is the kind of similar in, into present day stuff as well. It is absolutely similar. You know, what's really disappointing is seeing something like early on at the start, right after the tragedy that occurred on October 7th, you had uh, uh, Vladimir Zelensky coming out and comparing the incursion into Israel to that of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Mm. which is just that is that is a a troubling statement in many ways, because it suggests a lack of awareness. Generally, the comparison between the Palestinian people to a nuclear power like Russia is is beyond absurd. Right. And it's dehumanizing. It's extremely dangerous rhetoric at the same time. So that's what's disappointing here. We seem to be at a stage right now, very similar to at the start of, of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, where 
both where we have extreme amounts of tribalism on both sides. Law, this is such a polarized topic, and it has long been a polarized topic, the the the, the conflicts between Israel and Palestine. Mm-hmm. But 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 right now the level of tribalism, people simply aren't willing to talk in human terms. I mean, I put out a statement a few days ago just simply calling for an end to genocide and, and saying that this simply cutting off water and electricity, this these are war crimes that there is no there is no justification, there's no forgiveness for such things. And that statement, I caught backlash for that, despite condemning all the violence on both sides. It's like people refuse to see this idea that no innocent civilians being killed as a reasonable statement. It's not to them. There clearly seems to still be this sort of justification taking place, and that's a very dangerous time to be in. Absolutely. it's um, And as you said, it, it it's clear war crimes, and it's, it's deplorable that we see you know, from a European perspective, Ursula von der Leyen, um, who almost a year to the day was saying about Russia cutting off electricity or targeting power supplies and water supplies against the Ukrainian people. And then she's doing a guided tour with the Israeli Defence Force and not willing to call them out on doing the exact same actions that she called out a year previously. It, it's, uh, it's alarming. And I think... Uh, the one thing everybody hopefully can agree on is that it can't continue and the loss of civilian life, the loss of innocent life is not worth anything like what we've been seeing over the last two weeks. Um, the problem is how how much how, how much death are we going to witness on both sides before people come to that conclusion, before people finally start to backtrack, right? Yeah. That's how, much, real- how much death is proportionate? I mean, a child we, dying already seen dad in yeah. Palestine every 15 minutes. That's okay Absolutely. for Joe Biden. That's okay for Uncle Joe to sign the checks. <laughs> you see him slowly starting to backtrack, though, making statements like I, I saw earlier saying, I, "We have to, we have to remember that you know most Palestinians are not Hamas and they're simply innocent civilians." Oh, finally, you know, after what it's been a, a week or yeah, so, yeah. right? Yeah. Like now you've decided that 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 it's okay to say this. Are you kidding the, me? <laughs> the most disturbing aspect of his visit there was. He couldn't look into the camera. He couldn't look his eyes into the camera. He was messing with his hands and he was saying, um, I saw the footage and he, he's kind of in the direction of Netanyahu and he's like, uh, it was for it, it was the other team that did it. The other team. This isn't the Super Bowl. This is people's lives and you're describing them as the other team. It's absolutely bizarre. Now, you know, you hear statements like this, right? And here's how I here's how I view this. I've been writing about you know the intersection of sports and politics with a heavy focus on authoritarian regimes over the years. And part of that was due to the belief that democracies are the ones who have at least a rule of law, an understanding of human rights, and the willingness to protect those human rights, right? What have we been? What have we seen of such in the past couple of weeks? Right, it's really, really troubling situation because now all these supposed moral arbitrators, right? You know, England, France, uh, the, you know, Canada, the United States. Supposed, I mean, of course, theoretically, it's been a joke for forever, right? These are all long-term hypocrites, but we're really seeing the extent of that hypocrisy right now, right? This whole idea of you know, never again with the Holocaust. Clearly, that just applied to some people, not everybody. That's Absolutely. really upsetting, and it's upsetting for me who tries to uh, reckon with 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 the, you know the the impact of politics and sports and where I'm supposed to be focusing my attention. And it's hard to see 
I'll give you an example. I've been doing so much reporting lately on Saudi Arabia, and I'm proud of all the reporting I've been doing, because Saudi Arabia, at the end of the day, uh, while there have been reforms, there have been changes taking place in the country, it's important to know the amount of repression that is still there, and the fact that it's a complete autocracy. It's, it's a constituency of one, and it's Mohammed bin Salman's country to rule, right? At the end of the day, that's not a healthy environment in the long term. I firmly believe this. I've lived in multiple authoritarian regimes. Yet then you get the topsy-turvy reality of Saudi Arabia being the one foreign ministry that actually releases a very firm statement yesterday following or just recently following the bombings that took place at uh, at, at the hospital in, in Gaza that killed 500 people. Saudi Arabia was one of the only countries that has actually put out a harsh and firm statement. You know, <laughs> how do you reckon with stuff like this, right? I know. It, it, coming from Western democracies. Yeah, it, it, and... and and when it intertwines with, with with sport, you're kind of going, you know, I mean, with 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 Saudi Arabia, we the first kind of now you correct me if I'm wrong, you're the expert, but the first time uh, we've seen in the last five to six years of normalization in terms of Western sports and Western culture, it seemed to have been the deal with uh, the WWE with Vince McMahon's company uh pro professional wrestling in, in america signed a 10-year deal with the, the saudi government to bring their product over and at the start the women's wrestlers weren't allowed to participate mm -hmm. then they were allowed to participate in full they had to cover their bodies and now it's evolved and it seems to evolve every uh show uh, premium live event that they do but my, my i i i watch professional wrestling I have watched some of those events in Saudi. When I'm watching it, this is the this is the thing. Like, am I to think about this one constituent state? Am I to think about, you know, what happens if you're gay over there? Um, you know, and and it's like it's like what we see with the English Premier League. Sorry, my question there was, was the WWE the first kind of entertainment sports contract that Saudi Arabia signed? It was certainly one of the first, and I'd say it was the 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 most significant at the time, right? The Saudi Arabia had already had a very basic deal with the WWE. They had already gone for a couple of events, if I'm not mistaken, before you know Mohammed bin Salman started implementing Vision 2030. But once he did, and he appointed Turki Sheikh to the head of the sports authority at the time, which would later become the the Ministry of Sports, uh, that was one of his first big missions: was bringing in the WWE. It was seen as a family friendly show where. Saudi Saudi Arabia would be able to present this, you know, reformed, modernized nation where you'd be able to see in an auditorium or a stadium, instead of actually just seeing men, you'd be able to see families, you'll see women, you'll see children. And it's this, it's, it's uh, softening the brand uh, image that Saudi Arabia had. At the Sport time. washing. Of course, well, it's sports washing, and especially then, I would argue that sports washing really was the key driver of a lot of what Saudi Arabia was doing. So, really, a lot of this to, begins with uh, WWE. Sure, certainly did have some events uh, in Saudi Arabia before Mohammed bin Salman began implementing Vision 2030, but it all really uh, changed and developed significantly once Vision 2030 really became the master plan that Saudi Arabia was moving forward with in 2016. He appoints Turkey. Kiel Sheikh 
uh, at the time to the head of the sports authority in Saudi Arabia, which would later become the Ministry of Sports. And WWE was one of those first big ventures at the time. Why? Because it was an opportunity to present this really family-friendly show. And it really was a, 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 a opportunity to soften Saudi Arabia's brand and really to present some sports washing out of this, right? That was really Saudi Arabia's aim at the time, if you think about it. This was at the time where Hamad bin Salman was on this like reform tour of the United States and of the UK, etc., speaking with all these big media entities, meeting with politicians, all these articles were being written about, he's the great reformer coming to change Saudi Arabia. And WWE actually played into that quite well, in a way that, say, you know, the Formula One wouldn't have been able to at the time. With the WWE, apart from the fact that you have a scripted show that you can control and really create, you know, an entertainment branch of propaganda right before your eyes, it also is an opportunity to show a stadium filled with, you know, women, uh, families, children, a much, you know, softer image of Saudi Arabia, especially to the West, which uh, would have just been used to an utterly male-dominated uh, society. Uh, so it really, I think, was very, very useful at the time having the WWE. And yes, it was one of the first big projects that Saudi Arabia has. I'd say it's taken a... Uh, a, a step back since then like at, at this point now Saudi Arabia has invested in so much and they have really achieved much bigger boons since then I think that improving their domestically bringing in Cristiano Ronaldo and Neymar these are these are bigger names than than anything the WWE has to offer of course at the, at the end of the day uh right the, the fact that they're about to host potentially and really very likely will host the 2034 World Cup right these are all big 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 uh successes that Saudi Arabia has been able to achieve but there is absolutely a very significant understated and you know underreported link between the rise of Saudi Arabia's sports washing strategy and the WWE, absolutely. So that was that's that's a great uh, uh, thing to point out there. It's it's fascinating as well when you when you think about this in the, in the context of using sport as a way to to kind of uh, as, like it's sport washing, but that idea that you know millions of people around the world are going to tune into this. So how do we make it look like? You know, we're, we're, we're progressive. We're all these things, and it's mm-hmm. it's fascinating. And like, I'm a big Formula One fan. And when I heard about the Grand Prix going to Jeddah, I instantly thought, "All right, F1 doesn't exactly have a great reputation in terms of promoting women in the say. first place." And now this, and it's and F1. I mean, like F1's in Qatar, another example of how. But it's, it's in Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan, yeah, exactly. The Baku. Yeah, I actually Grand Prix. saw it in Baku uh, quite a few years ago now, maybe t- sometime in 2015. I think I caught it in yeah. Baku. I caught the Formula One. I used to live in Bahrain, and Bahrain was one of the was the first country in the Middle East to get the Formula One. And yeah. I went for the first couple of years uh, to to it, and I attended it long before I even knew what sports washing was or what was happening. I mean, I was what 14 years old at the time, 13, something like that, and. Uh, uh, I mean, yeah, like like you said, Formula One doesn't exactly have the best reputation when it comes to you know, the countries it chooses to deal with. So Saudi Arabia really wasn't uh, exceptional, really, when it came to the Formula One in my eyes. I mean, they already had relationships with some very, very questionable regimes up to that point. It's it's incredible how Formula One over the last sort of 15 years has, uh, has grown exponentially, but the ties to those authoritarian regimes. And as you said, Bahrain being the first one, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and it's Baku. And don't get me wrong, like these Grand Prix often do look incredible on on TV. The, yeah. the 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 Baku Grand Prix, the mixture of the track going through the old city and everything, the visuals are amazing. 
factor mm-hmm. that in with the fact that they didn't tend to have a big concert with, you know, a global superstar headliner, all these things combine to make it seem like I want to be there. I want to go there. That sounds like an amazing place to be. But it's un- underneath that sort of superficial layer, then you kind of go, where, why, why is it? Why is it there? Why is the money for this so big in a place that probably wouldn't have been anywhere near Formula One? Like, the, I I can't imagine Saudi Arabia was bursting with F1 fans prior to this. And I can't imagine now looking at it, Saudi Arabia are overly happy when, you know, you've your Lewis Hamilton and Sebastian Vettel before he retired, who are, you know, they've got the rainbow flag on their helmet. They're doing little things like that to just try and say to people, we're here because this, that, be. that's their little protest. But I, I would have said that about WWE events. And then when I've watched them, I mean, the crowd is loud. The crowd is there. They know what they're talking about. Although I, I think there was reports uh, at the first ever show, they requested for former WWE champion Yoko Zuna to appear. And he, he's been <laughs> over 15 years. So they did have a list of wrestlers they wanted to appear that had long passed away. And, and, and that was quite lads what he is down here so when I heard that report I was like I was thinking the same Dan that you were thinking about uh, you know are they really F1 fans or are they really if they're asking for Yokozuna who died yeah. in, in 2000 are they still you know are they actually wrestling fans it's it's fascinating how they, they've gone about doing it and, and Cream this is where I'd be really interested to get your take because you rightly pointed out the fact that now that they have their fingers in so many pies you know with You've got football, a global sport. Okay, I can easily understand why they want to get into football, right? And I can easily understand, you know, the, the, them throwing money at your Ronaldo's, your Cream Benzema's, the, the Newcastle project, you know, I mean, all this sort of stuff. Then you look at golf and you're kind of like, okay, all right, I can kind of see why they'd go after it. But it's it feels like they have very strategically put themselves into positions where they're going after different demographics and different audiences because they really want to capture as many eyeballs as possible. There's no doubt about it. When we think about golf, I I struggled with that one for a while, primarily because golf really has, uh, since it's really an American pastime for, for, for the most part, there is a significant section a segment of the population that says that's conservative you know that's 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 white and that that loves golf so those are all that's also happens to be the demographic that didn't take kindly to saudi arabia and still holds the most say resentment to 9-11 whether i mean that's rightfully attributed to saudi arabia or not that's that's the that's the position they have chosen to take right which is why the pga tour at a certain point and jay monahan one of the things he did to sort of you know counter saudi's approach with live golf was to meet with all the 9-11 families right and release these statements saying the pga is supportive of the 9-11 families and stands with them etc right i mean that was your demographics so you're feeding into that while Saudi was trying to cut through that perspective, right? This is where that sort of uh, reputation laundering or brand management, whatever terms you want to use here, that's where that really applies very well, right? Uh, Saudi Arabia was trying to see where, where it can go here. Where Can it actually change the minds of these older Americans? And at the same time, can it apply its uh, vast resources 
to bully another business, a really prominent American business. I mean, this all this stuff, the PJ one is really interesting, Danny, I have to admit, because that also took place at an interesting a geopolitical moment, uh, I'd say, where Mohammed bin Salman and his foreign policy was really taking it to the United States. I mean, we're seeing right now that the U.S. is still desperate to get into a good uh, agreement with Saudi Arabia that includes a normalization deal with Israel, actually. So the timing right now is really, really terrible. <laughs> Right. But this is basically one of Joe Biden's big foreign policy aims over the past couple of years with setting a good deal with Saudi Arabia. Meanwhile, Mohammed bin Salman has just been throwing out absolutely ridiculous demands at the United States, demands that Saudi would never have attempted all these years ago. Right. Had they still considered the U.S. to be such a global hegemon. They would never have continued to raise oil prices the way they do, right? They have a complete disregard for what's occurring in the United States or what the U.S. is is, is uh, is is trying to you know diplomatically relate to them <laughs> so i think the pga is just another facet of that it's where mohammed bin salman was able to say hey look at me i've been able to take over an american pastime just like that with a little bit of litigation by poaching some of the big players that's all it took right it was a big statement and i think that was a significant turning point uh, in mainstream media and amongst sports fans in general saying oh shit this is a real competitor here we can absolutely see American sports leagues and organizations entirely wiped out or taken over, right? Because people like to call this a merger. There is nothing merger related about this. This was a hostile takeover. It was a hostile takeover. That's how these things are done. You're poaching players and forcing litigation, you know, intimidating your stakeholders. Of course, that's a hostile takeover. That's how it works. We're going to now see whether this merger goes through, right? This is a big moment for the United States, I think. If regulatory bodies do not stand up to this, properly stand up to this and deny Saudi Arabia, the, and I mean, I cannot overstate how little Saudi actually invested in, in, in the live golf and in all the money it's putting into sports in general to be able to achieve this right now, right? They're not even How little? Putting, oh, it's, an, it's so little. It is so little, Graham and really? what they're spending on everything else. Oh, yeah, no doubt. Sports, first of all, when you think of, you know, Vision 2030, and I, and I, and I honestly encourage you guys to at some point go on the P public uh, investment fund website, look up the Vision 2030 and see some of those, uh, you know, PDF files that they have on there. You'll see that they've split the uh their sort of parameters and their 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 pillars what they want to achieve into sort of 13 sections sports isn't even its own section it's in there with entertainment right and then you've got construction you've got tourism you've got investments and all sorts of other facets when you think of how much they've spent on you know the giga projects like neon you know that super big you know uh, ultra modern futuristic techno whatever city that they're intending to to build out in the desert that's like 500 billion dollars i think that's estimated right uh when you think of just how much they've actually invested into venture capital funds as far as we can tell so far there's more than 35 billion dollars that have been spent uh, that have been invested into venture capital funds in the united states we're talking all the big ones too sequoia etc and that's something people aren't talking about right yet he's invested let's 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 average it out let's say let's say let's just jump and say 15 15 billion well that doesn't even match what he's invested in venture capital funds right it goes to show you it's a drop in the bucket for what saudi's capable of but at the same time it also i think underscores why they focus on sports like this because you can invest less in it and get far more attention far more prestige far more recognition far more influence 
than by you know constructing something in your own desert. Eventually, that but might. So is, is, is that what the payoff is? Is that what the payoff is? Recognition and and like yes. I mean, if 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 they're awarded the World Cup in twenty twenty four, are are people going to say to FIFA, um, okay, you've awarded them, but do you know about them? Do you know that I know. People like yourself are doing that as we speak. But sure, um, look, look at Qatar. What's, what's the response you're getting from from FIFA? Like, well, I mean, it looks to me like FIFA has really, you know, set this up for Saudi Arabia to achieve 2034, right? I mean, they made they basically locked out a bunch of the different uh, confederations from even being able to to challenge for 2034, right? They basically trying to get Asia to just simply back Saudi Arabia instead of uh, instead of Australia, who hasn't even. Like, Country that hasn't even placed a formal bid yet and then you've got what oceana's left over so new zealand i mean there's barely any competition here right and so they've crammed like six countries hosting the 2030 world cup in the most ridiculous like uh, uh, situation i've ever seen yeah. and it really lines up saudi arabia to achieve 2034 like it's nothing right to me i see these major organizations these major entities like fifa and the ioc as complicit in uh, in in uh, the behaviors of authoritarian regimes in general right if not flat out encouraging this type of behavior but here is really the big thing here graham is that i don't really think by the time we get to 2034 we're going to be talking very much about you know saudi arabia's human rights abuses because in many ways, Saudi has already gone past that stage. Remember when I was talking about how this we were really going beyond sports washing here? Because at first it was about distracting from human rights abuses, which suggests that Saudi fears some sort of consequence, retribution, reaction from the Western world that would limit its ability to influence, right? That's no longer the case. As a matter of fact, Saudi Arabia is far more influential than the vast majority of other countries able to bid or compete in the world of sports. I mean, hell, combat sports, which is something Saudi Arabia is not even really that interested in, they are suddenly the epicenter of boxing. They're yeah. about to host the biggest heavyweight showdown, I think, in a generation at this point, right? If this actually goes through and we have Tyson Fury versus Alexander Usyk, that's a humongous fight. And that's taking place not in Las Vegas, Right. Not in, you know, Abu Dhabi, which is setting itself up as well as a combat sports like epicenter. But no, it is Saudi Arabia. And they're doing that just on the side. That's a side thing. Right. But they're also doing that while hosting, you know, Riyadh season, which is this big entertainment and cultural event aimed to bring in tourism. They are connecting all their projects together in a way I've never seen another country do, if I'm being honest with you. Right. We've seen the UAE attempt it a little bit. But they're not as influential as Saudi Arabia, not in my not in my opinion, at least. Saudi Arabia is aiming to use this to really achieve power and prestige and maintain global influence. And what comes with this power and global influence is this idea that even its staunchest critics now have no choice but to work with Saudi Arabia. So it's not going to matter at this point whether you know Saudi Arabia has committed human rights abuses. The success for Saudi is not hiding the abuses. It's being able to still host these events in spite of the abuses. At that point of achievement. The great example of that is Ari Emanuel, who, <laughs> you know, I mean, now in his role. Who's Ari Emanuel, Danny, for our listeners? So he, he's the, the, the top dog in the USC WWE. Uh, I can't remember the name of it. TKO. Yeah, it's yeah. like, so <laughs> to rewind a couple of years. He's, he's, but, he's already kicked out Vince McMahon from creative after a month, which is. Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, Vince has skeletons in his closet 
and some of them yeah. aren't in the closet anymore. So, you know, um, but yeah, he's, he's an interesting cat, this guy. And you rewind a couple of years and, and Kareem, I'm almost certain you wrote about this as well, that he was kind of in bed with the Saudi, the Saudi Arabian regime. Then the despicable murder happened of uh, Jamal Khashoggi and Ari Emanuel went, I can't, nope, I can't, I can't. And, you know, he was, I, I believe he hired bodyguards at the time. He was that kind of nervous about withdrawing his support or whatever. Um, fast forward to modern day and this merger happens and suddenly he's in a position here again where UFC and uh, WWE and as we've just been discussing, the fact that WWE are, you know, almost like the, the the flag carrier in many ways for the family entertainment piece in Saudi Arabia. So it's, as you said, it's interesting who people who might be vocal critics or might be unwilling to to work with them now have to work with them. Oh, absolutely. I think you, you really mentioned an interesting point. It's another one of those situations that I would consider a turning point, really, because Saudi Arabia had gone through such a massive effort to present itself as a reformed nation. And then the assassination, honestly, let's call it what it is, the dismemberment of Jamal Khashoggi occurs, right? And that was a significant setback to Hamad bin Salman's uh, uh, image, right? His enhanced image. To this day, I think if there's one thing that continues to saddle his image of being presented flat out as a, as a reformer, it's the memory that he that he okayed the dismembering of a journalist, basically, who was barely a, a, a dissident, barely a true dissident in comparison to what human rights activists say about the country, etc. He really was a moderate, let's put him that way, right? And still, that's what Mohammed bin Salman chose to do. And if there was going to be a moment for sports and for, for organizations and for corporations to turn against Saudi Arabia or to turn on Saudi Arabia, it was going to be that moment, right? It was going to be that moment. And Ari Emanuel, in the first and only time in his life, you know, chose to take moral action rather than capitalistic action, right? First and only time he's ever done this. It's completely out of character for Ari Emanuel. If you read his, his entire history, it's completely out of character. Right. So he actually does that steps back from Saudi Arabia, thinking that the rest of the people are going to follow. And nobody does. Nobody follows whatsoever. And he's left sitting back watching us as, as, you know, the gold rush taking place in Saudi Arabia and all these different co corporations capitalizing on that. And he's sitting back saying, well, what has what has my morality, you know, brought for me? Right. What has it done for me lately? So, of course, when he got the opportunity to jump back into this again, whether it be, you know, through. Uh, well, let's say let's just let's just say through the through the TKO merger that that occurred between the WWE and and the UFC, there was really no doubt that he was going to okay this behavior. And I and I mean I, I wrote about it at the time as soon as this merger was announced. I said it's a matter of time. Within a year, I expect the UFC, which Ari owns as well, to host its first event in Saudi Arabia. Absolutely. Lo and behold. I think maybe ten months after I wrote that article, it's going to take place in 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 uh, in March uh, 2024. We're going to see the very first UFC event in Saudi Arabia, also as part of Riyadh season. You know, connect, everything is connected, right? So they're going there. It's part of we can call it you know Saudi sports washing strategy. We can call it part of its greater sports strategy, or even just an act of tourism as well, right? So there's so many layers to what what they're doing. And Ari Emanuel is now going to be just the latest in a long list of people who will continue need to capitalize but i have one 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 more thing i want to say there's also i think i i sometimes in telling this story or liking to reference this jamal khashoggi incident and how the ufc or how the wwe was really crucial at that point in sort of 
insisting no we're going to still hold an event there and which sort of was a was a uh, sort of a, a a crossing of the Rubicon. There was really no going back from for, for the WWE from there. But you know what? Nobody held it against them. The WWE was still able to operate both in in in, in the United States and elsewhere. Uh, and other corporations ended up following suit. Right. So this is really a great way to show you that this is just how Saudi Arabia operates. Unfortunately, it, it all it takes is one person to say, "Oh, you know what." I'm doing this for the money anyway, and we're going to go and, and the media is going to let go of this story eventually. And that's exactly what happened there. Right. But I don't know. It's, 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 it's one of those really uh, uh, depressing topics. I like that when, when we think about it, because there could have been a legitimate reaction over Jamal Khashoggi. And instead, you know, there was a bit of outcry, right. Which is what we hear generally all the time. You know, when a topic becomes trendy on social media, et cetera, there's outcry people, you know, voice their resentment or their, they rant or they rage for a little while and then they forget about it and they move on. And that's exactly what these corporations expect. And I think they are too tied in bed anyway with, with Saudi Arabia at this point. Like Graham, I was just saying a little while ago, right? That Saudi Arabia has invested 35 billion in venture capital funds, right? And they could, they've invested in tons and tons of, of, of corporations in the United States. It's far easier said than done to distance yourself from Saudi Arabia now. Because now it's a matter of breaking your fiduciary duty to your stakeholders and to your shareholders, because getting rid of Saudi means you're losing money as a company, which is literally the opposite of what you are brought on to do as, say, a CEO or a leading figure or a leading executive, right? Your whole point is the pursuit of profit. No matter where that pursuit of profit is going to lead you into the arms of a dictator, that doesn't really matter to, to these people, yeah. as long as it means more profit. That's such a troubling mentality and that's what's leading us down this path where saudi can absolutely just swallow up whole sports organizations because it's in their mandate unfortunately it's it's incredible and it, it, it it's breached now is now bound it is even you know it's well, well not directly the same if you look at something like climate change you look at the cop meeting mm -hmm. and it's how the oil burdens of the world suddenly found themselves at the top of what is a global environment, a global environmental meeting, and it's they're setting the agenda. And it's you know, it's 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 incredible. Like in one sense, you kind of have to look on in awe of how quickly it's all happened. But in another sense, you kind of need to step back and say, what like how how has it been allowed to have it's it, it it's insane. And in to, to to jump again and and Kareem, but this is probably the one we'll, we'll finish on with you. But like football, we, we've touched a little bit on the fact that it's extremely likely the World Cup is going to be there um, in the next decade. And if you look at it as well, then from the point of view, a lot of our listeners would be Premier League fans. Newcastle United is a story that is just, I mean, there's going to be books and books and books written about this one. It It's incredible what's going on. I think, I think especially when we talk about uh, the English Premier League, it's been in this situation long before Saudi came into the picture, though, hasn't it? Right. Well, Man City yeah. as well, yeah. Like with Man City, right? Like we've seen this as part of football's problem for a while now. Man City was the first example. As a matter of fact, really, I think people underestimate how how much the United Arab Emirates as a country has really influenced. Uh, I don't think, let's put it this way. I really don't think there is a complex Saudi sports strategy right now had there not been 
uh, a predecessor in the United Arab Emirates. As a matter of fact, I still think the UAE, particularly Abu Dhabi, is among the most uh, cunning and and competent examples of of, of sports diplomacy, of sports yeah. uh, strategy, and of sports washing. Right, and, and so another one with an F one race as well. Let's just got yeah. so the F one race. Hell, think of it this way. I mean, the UAE made jujitsu it's a national sport, right? It's officially the national sport in the country, creating a significant cultural uh, dynamic between the UAE and Brazil of all countries, right? I mean, Lula was just, the President Lula in Brazil was just there a couple of months ago, celebrating Mohammed bin Zayed, the, the president as well of, of, of the United Arab Emirates, saying that his, his you know, visionary view of jiu-jitsu and elevating the status of the sport and bringing in all these Brazilian jiu-jitsu instructors to train, by the way, not just individuals in private gyms, not just the royal family, but to also train the police force and the military. So you think of how the UAE has viewed just how it can handle one sport. It can create sort of a, a, a national identity through the sport. It can use it to uh, as a form of diplomacy and cultural exchange with other countries, right? It can it can use it to create it a, a to present itself in a prestigious way as a epicenter and a, a a global center for combat sports, right? And at the same time it's able to utilize this for its defense of as an actual country and its police force and its military. That's one sport, guys. And that's not even the sport the country is best known for. Right. So when we talk, right. That's the thing. And when we talk, that's why that's why sometimes the term sports washing bothers me, because it's such a limited scope of, of the scale of what's of what's actually going on. Right. When you talk about sports washing, you're just simply as at least this is the way I've always interpreted the term. We're really just talking about distracting from human rights abuses. We're really just talking about reputation laundering. That might matter to some countries. I'll tell you, it matters to Rwanda and Paul Kagame in Rwanda, for instance, right? It really does matter to him. There are some smaller countries that don't have the resources and the, well, the PR departments, let's just say, of countries like the UAE and Saudi Arabia, and really the global influence too, right? They are powerful nations now on a political scale, not a sports scale, on a political scale. They don't need to hide who they are anymore. As a matter of fact, the UAE, the person who was known as the Jiu-Jitsu Sheikh in the UAE is Sheikh Tahnoun, right, bin Zayed al-Nahyan. He's the younger brother of the current president right now. Sheikh Tahnoun is actually best known as the spy chief of the UAE. That's what he's really known for. And that's what, one of the things the UAE is very well known for is this very advanced spyware that they use to bring down dissidents and to, you know, hand over to the other dictators to bring down dissidents as well. The other country that's phenomenal at this is Israel, actually. And guess what? The third country that's great at this, Canada. <laughs> so it's not like we're just talking about authoritarian regimes like the UAE being the the, the 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 most troubling countries in the world right now right we're talking about so-called democracies like israel right and so-called democracies like canada right so it's, it's getting to a point now where i no longer want to look at the analysis of sports and politics through solely through sports washing i think it's it it really is a, a crude and too simple of a way to analyze what's going on in the world and the extreme role that sports is now playing in all of this. I also think it's important now that we expand significantly beyond just authoritarian regimes and start holding other countries 
uh, with the same critical eye that we've been doing so with Qatar and elsewhere, right? Like I wrote an article for The Guardian uh, shortly after the, the Qatar World Cup ended saying, well, I'm very glad that all my colleagues have decided to join me in the coverage of sports and politics now, when a lot of people before said that this, there's no point doing this. You're more than happy to do this for Qatar. I hope you're going to do the exact same thing when the Olympics rolls around next year in Paris. Because let me tell you right now, France is not behaving like a Western democracy. France is behaving like an authoritarian regime in multiple yeah. ways, right? in absolute multiple ways here, just to list a few. Most recently, we've seen them, you know, have police uh, violently disperse and attack peaceful protesters, uh, you know, who are demonstrating in favor of Palestine and just simply demonstrating against the acts of genocide taking place as well. That's not something that should be requiring, you know, tear gas as a response. So it's really horrific when we think about the fact that France has banned hijabs for athletes. So that means no member of the France team can actually wear a hijab while they're It's absolutely crazy to stay in Asia. It's, it's what, what, is, what is the logic? Ridiculous. What's the logic behind banning the hijab for, for athletes? Like I know there was the, all the talk before of kind of and, and I, I could be wrong on this. This could be just social media talk. But it was that piece around it. It's it racist essentially. The, the, you, you know, it's easy to hide a terrorist in a hijab kind of thing. But for an for an mm -hmm. athlete, I, I just don't see any logic, rhyme, or reason for it. Honestly, I don't think it really comes down to that at all. I think really France sees itself as a deeply secular country, mm -hmm. and to the point that they're willing to take such radical stances to protect their so-called secularism right the problem is is once you start oppressing others as we had talked about this earlier you are you're no better right than than the people you're trying to stay away from or not be like you're trying to say france has this whole big idea that it's simply trying to eradicate you know extremism or or orthodoxy and religion and stuff like that and protect itself and I mean, for and I mean, one of the key elements of a democracy, as we all know, is the ability to have religious freedoms and the freedom to express your religion as well, as long as it's peaceful. But I don't see how a hijab is anything but a peaceful act. Exactly. And, and by forcibly removing hijabs from women, not only are you abusing women's rights, but you're also just generally uh, just abusing religious rights and, and it really just doing absolutely everything to prove that you are not a democracy at this point. Really, it's really, really disappointing behavior from France. Not to mention, I want to end on this just one last point with France, is that just a few months ago, France passed these really, really awful laws allowing for facial recognition software using uh, AI uh, technology really abusive ai technology to be used during the paris 2024 games now this was passed under the guise of security concerns and that to help protect uh, uh you know the visitors coming for paris 2024 here's the real problem though it was passed without parliament's approval macron passed it without parliament's approval and Easy. there's nothing suggests that it will actually stop following Paris 2024. The idea now is that under the guise of improving security for a sports event, France has actually now enabled AI-controlled facial recognition software as part of its just standard security in Paris and elsewhere in the country. That is a horrific precedent, and it, and it really takes it one step worse when you realize that a lot of the software 
unfortunately has you know racial biases and the ai software yeah. the way it's trained mm. it's trained to recognize you know brown and dark skin faces and see them as trouble and you have a lot more false positives this is something that's happened this is why this technology has been tested experimented and withdrawn in a lot of countries because they realize that there's still a lot of faults with them unfortunately france has decided nope the positives and security outweigh the human rights concerns anytime a democracy does that they lose that status of democracy as far as i'm concerned big time and and Absolutely. do you think um as well green um just as as we were talking about western democracies holding i suppose france with the olympics but then in um in the next world cup the, the fifa world cup it's north america so mm. america isn't really the usa isn't really a flag bearer of humanitarian uh really is it i mean given that it it's a warmongering country. I mean, th there will be well-documented criticisms. Criti I'm hoping that there's going to be well-documented criticisms of America as that, as that tournament approaches. Oh my goodness! There's so much to criticize about the United States from you know its 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 domestic policies, from potential, from you know police brutality, uh, from and then we can get into its foreign policy approaches. We can get into the far right rhetoric of many of its politicians right now. I mean, yeah. the United States is currently trying to elect a Speaker of the House who is one of the far right politicians in the country who was very much pro the insurrection that took place uh, just a couple of years ago. Right. So this is the state of the United States states right now not to mention for a country that has been arguing as well and amongst its lots of its journalists from that country have been arguing that we should not be going to Qatar because of the issue with gay rights in Qatar and the lack of respect afforded to LGBTQ plus people in the country. Well, then how can we not say the same thing about the United States, where in some countries they're simply excluding trans people entirely and other places where there's simply no gay rights whatsoever? It's like we we seem to miss, we seem to really think that the United States, because once upon a time it passed, uh, you know, a gay marriage bill, that suddenly everything's okay and it's all it's all roses now. It's absolutely yeah. not roses. As a matter of fact, it's one of the most like uh, right now, twenty twenty three in the United States, it's a terrible time to be a gay person, to be a person within the queer community at all. Right now, it is not a great time. So I certainly hope that all my colleagues out there who are so quick to jump on Qatar, rightfully so, mind you, speaking about mm -hmm. these issues and about the, 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 the restriction of human rights in any country is always something I'm going to be in favor for. But we need to always make sure that we apply that evenly across the board. Absolutely. And that's something with your work, Karim, that I've been following over maybe the last four or five years that um, it's really commendable because you're so consistent and Anytime I read your articles, uh, and I don't mind saying it because I'm a student of journalism, that I, I kind of fist pump, I kind of go, go on, Kareem, that's how you do it. And uh, I, I celebrate your articles a lot of the times because of how the, the how stellar the work is. So keep on doing that. And another one, like, I suppose one of the topics that you're covering, and I just wanted it, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring it up before we had your time, was on Ramzan uh, Kadyrov. If that's mm -hmm. how I pronounced it correctly, um, is he dead or alive? <laughs> <laughs> he seems to be alive, and you know what? I I will never get over just how much in in throughout my career, mixed martial arts has been a very strange and absurd lens that I've been able to view 
the rest of reality and the world from. And here's here's the way I can I can tell you this is actually true. Is I've been I've been wondering for a while has is Ramzan Kadyrov alive or dead? I wrote an article about it saying, well, we aren't really seeing any footage. And then lo and behold, an MMA event takes place in Chechnya, sponsored and run by Ramzan Kadyrov, part of his ACA promotion. And guess who's sitting there on a raised dais watching the event? But Ramzan Kadyrov himself. He's alive, and the way we know he's alive is because he was in attendance at a live MMA event at the time. And make it make sense, Graham. Make it make sense. <laughs> it's mental. And then I love when you expose the, the MMA uh, fighters that have done like special seminars within Chechnya. Mm-hmm. And it's like, then they're posed the question, do you know about their lack of rights for for for, for the, the gay community? And they're always just playing dumb and that they just accept the cash and, and stuff like that. So... Uh, oh, amazing, yeah. got- amazing, amazing work. Well, thank you. You've got plenty of willful ignorance taking place in sports. And I mean, the UFC allows these athletes to get away with anything. There's no consequences to be faced at all, right? And, and the U.S. government hasn't done much better in my eyes. I mean, there are sanctions out against uh, Ramzan Kadyrov, is MMA promotion specifically as well, right? Yet fighters have still gone there and faced absolutely no repercussions when the repercussions include very hefty fines and potential jail, jail time. Yet nobody has faced any such consequence here's the kicker we've got a ufc 294 event on saturday and the event features actually a co-main event between two of kadyrov's favorite fighters you've got hamza <laughs> chimayev actually who's currently his favorite fighter right and then you've got kamaro usman a former ufc welterweight champion who has visited chechnya at kadyrov's behest not once not twice but three times so far twice while he was champion actually and he went there because he would always visit one of Ramzan Kadyrov's children one of his three sort of like elder sons the middle one is called Adam and Adam is a huge MMA fan was a huge Kamaro fan so every year on Adam's birthday Kadyrov would invite Kamaro Usman pay him tons of money multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars to visit Chechnya and just spar with Adam and attend his birthday party this is what you would see Fighters are turned into, they pretend that they're the baddest people on the planet, right? They pretend, but they are li- very, just simply puppets for warlords and dictators at the end of the Big day. Time. And, and they don't have a moral, how can, how are you expected to, for them to have a moral compass when their president was 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 caught slapping his wife on, on, on camera? So I think that says exactly. it all. No, I think it absolutely does say it all. Absolutely. Um, Graham, it, is, it has been a brilliant and fascinating uh, chat with you this evening, man. Do appreciate your time so much. If people want to check out more of your work, they can go to kareemzidane.com. And of course, we would highly recommend that they uh, sign up to your uh, newsletter, Sports Politica, as well, as Mero has already said. And and I'll, I'll save you the embarrassment of gushing over your articles as well. But um, th- some, <laughs> some of the reads are just absolutely brilliant. And they really, really do. Uh, cut through that cross section of kind of where sports, politics, and and all the other nitty gritty intertwine. Um, so thank you for all the work you do on that. But thank you uh, sincerely for your time this evening. Oh, thank you so much, guys. It's been an absolute pleasure. I'm more than happy to do this anytime. So you Lovely. guys just let me know when it works out, and we'll continue this conversation again. Because guess what? I don't even think we scratched the surface out of today. Absolutely, no, definitely yeah. not. And you, you, you'll be sorry for making that offer because we'll definitely take you up on a train. <laughs> but on, until next time, man, thank you so much. It's a pleasure, guys. Take care. Thank you, Graham. Have thank a good you. day. You too. Absolutely 
fascinating chat and I could I could have spent hours talking to him. Absolutely. And like I mean I wasn't I didn't bring it up on it, but it wasn't lost on me that we were talking about, you know, F1 and, and football and professional wrestling and you know talking about the elements of sports washing with these countries. But are we guilty of watching these? Um yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, and is that okay? Or is that is it a bit it's, like saying, you know, the, the actions of Israel aren't the views of the Israeli people, a lot of the a lot of the Israeli people, you know, so you know, don't 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 paint them in that brush. Is it like that for spectators of these sports? I think it is. What can we do? I think it is and it isn't. I think like you, you have very little choice. Well, you sorry, you do have it. There's some people who argue you have very simple choice. Turn off your telly. Yeah. But it, I don't think. And then the argument that is, you're only on the you're only on air for a, a small space of time, and you want to enjoy yourself. So if I like, I was never not going to watch the World Cup. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But I, I'm still able to say, here, Qatar, you're you're scum. Like, it's it's one of them where, and I, I struggled with it myself because like that, like. I love football. I love F one. I love like, and when I like, I mean the the reality of these things is that, as Kareem pointed out, even the harshest critics of the likes of Saudi Arabia are now forced to do business with them because they have intertwined themselves in such a way that you cannot unravel it. It's a spider's web now. Yeah. Think for if if the 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 world's powerful and elite can't unravel themselves from it. What hope has the average punter like you or I got? Exactly. Yeah. You know, um, and it's. I'd love for them to go. I'd I'd love for them to go after the sport of rugby. <laughs> I mean, listen, we've all said for years, Graham, that it's the elite in D four that ru- that ru- world rugby is ruled by. So you know, um. <laughs> uh, but definitely it's one of them as well. And look, let's not shy away from the fact that we are only months away from the truth being unveiled about Tallah Stadium and all the shenanigans that went on to get that developed and built. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uncovering what is just a, a horrific, horrific regime full of human rights abuses. Will we get the will we get the report out of how Ireland failed its eighth to get past the eighth World Cup quarterfinal in the rugby? I can give or it is, it, is it is it is it just articles about being proud? And well, I, it- actually, actually, I'm not going to point that at you because you're uh, you're one of a very small minority that was calling this from the start that Ireland would not progress after the quarterfinal. You've been saying it to me for about eight weeks. Yeah. So, what do you think of the articles of a sense of proud pride? We're proud of these men to I, fill these, as I, opposed to actual proper post mortem. Why can't we get past the quarterfinal of a World Cup? As I've said to you before, there is a toxic positivity in Irish rugby. And you are not allowed uh question or criticize unless you first bring to the table how our heroes in green done us proud and how they went out on their shields and all these other fucking waffly bollocksy statements. The the reality is very simple. We have a rinse and repeat method when it comes to Rugby World Cups. We blow our muck too soon and then we don't know what to do with ourselves. We, you know, if you look at the last, with the exception of 07 and 2019, 2007 was an absolute disaster. 2019, 
it, it fell apart it seems before we even got to the World Cup then Japan beat us in the group stages we are left with a quarter final against New Zealand New Zealand absolutely fucking tonked us right but if you take the examples of the years where we've supposedly been the best or among the best in the world but we're number and, one in the world now exactly well not anymore we're not um, but going into the tournament yeah we were but again if you look at it right so 2011 we beat Australia in the group phases and everyone lost their mind and thought this is it absolutely fantastic we get to the quarterfinals Wales absolutely fucking just do us in completely uh, you look at 2015 World Cup in England what I want I mean if you're going to win it win it on en- enemy territory because we're never going to get the host of World Cup again do you know what I mean Yeah, uh, we beat France in the group stages unbelievable amazing who do we go and lose to in the quarterfinals Argent fucking Tina an embarrassment right 2019 as I said already a kip a known rugby stronghold indeed well in fairness Argentina are a good rugby team but I mean like no just just no we should be making shite of Argentina every time we played them come up against them in a World Cup and suddenly we're made a Play-Doh right 2023 we get a draw that is very favourable South Africa okay yeah that's a challenge Scotland respectfully to the Scots we should beat them with 20 You, you didn't even enjoy the Ireland's uh, victory of South Africa. No, because we were big, lucky. It was, there was a big the, asterisk over your enjoyment the, of that. The, the only reason we beat South Africa is because of Razzie Rasmus, a.k.a. Paul Howard Doppelgangers, hubris and arrogance. If he had put his bullshit to one side and picked an actual 10, an actual kicker in the shape of Andre Pollard who he has subsequently picked in games afterwards for a very good fucking reason he recognised the writing on the wall Ireland did not play well against South Africa we stuttered and we stalled our line out was a kip I can't remember off the top top of my head how many line outs we lost but we misfired countless line outs against the Springboks and the reality is the only reason we got past them was because they fucked up so to summarise, South Africa lost that match more than we won that match, right? That performance was enough to tell me we absolutely my suspicions are correct. We absolutely will not be getting past the quarterfinal by beating South Africa that day. We assigned ourselves to play New Zealand. Now, in recent years, we've got the upper hand on New Zealand. We are on paper right now a better team than New Zealand, but when you add in. The, the, the World Cup factor the, the quarterfinal factor New Zealand wanting revenge factor New Zealand always turn up in a World Cup fa- all just these, the it, fact that it's New Zealand I even know that like Ireland, so, so 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 what yeah. no, nothing here what you've said is positive so the, yes mm. or no did Ireland have a good rugby World Cup no no they did not I'm, I'm, and are we seeing because on Monday I didn't see or in the Sunday uh, discussions or whatever all I saw now, I, I'm sincerely asking to be open mm-hmm. to be corrected here, but I didn't see any uh, objective criticism of a review, or um, it was all and, and I'm probably right. Think. So it was like, you know, congratulations, Jonathan Sexton, well done, yeah, uh, congratulations, Keith Earls for a turn, well done, mm-hmm. but there was no look, I wasn't asking, I'm not asking for pitchforks, I actually ultimately don't care, but I'm just wondering in regards to your comments about toxic positivity yeah is it actually completely just toxic and not objective to actual the performances no I, I I think it's somewhere in the middle right and I think I think we need to be more realistic in terms of 
like New Zealand are still they're not what they were, but they're still a very good team. And the, the reality is we should have beat them. They, like if there was every year to do it, this should have been the year. We we are a very, very, very good rugby team. We're worse off now because we do not have Johnny Sexton any longer. But the the reality here is that, and I can't remember which one the pundit said it, but one of them said it best when they said, if not now, when? when? Like this was their eighth quarter final in a rugby World Cup. We have not won a single half, never mind a match. We've never won a half. And so at a 40-minute interval, Ireland have never been in the lead in a Rugby World Cup. Right, that New Zealand game, twice they went down a man. We had a 20-minute period in that game where we had a man advantage. That's a quarter of the fucking match. Mm. And and the scoreline in that 20 minutes, Ireland 7, New Zealand 3. You do not beat top-class teams like that. We weren't rootless enough. For whatever reason, it just didn't happen. And you can have that. You can have days where you miss fire. But I think when you look at the tournament as a whole and you look at the fact that when we came up against top three, top five opposition, both occasions, we misfired. We we, we got past the spring box by fucking miracle, as far as I'm concerned. But against New Zealand in knockout rugby, it wasn't to be found. And I think Ireland if they're serious about the next World Cup phase, need to look at the mentality around that and they need to ask themselves the question. I'm not saying Andy Farrell needs to lose his job. He's done an amazing job at Ireland. Absolutely. Fair, yeah. fair, He'll fair be there two years though, isn't he? And another two years, 2025 is contract won still. Uh, no, he's only there since 21, isn't he? Sorry, yeah, he's only there, I think, yeah. Two, yeah. And it's... Now, there was another hyperbole about Andy Farrell, which again, any time I've seen him on interviews, I find him very easy to listen to. Um, but talk about hyperpole. I mean, he's there since 2021 and people were comparing him to Jack Charlton. Uh, I know, yeah, no, that's, it's... Uh, like, that's uh, disgraceful. Yeah, in terms of hyperbole, yeah, it is. It's it's it, it's completely different worlds. It's completely, you can't compare. It's not like for like that. Not think, at all. Thanks for what, saying that. What, what I will say about Andy Farrell is that he has built a very, very happy camp. The players love going into international camp now. And in that regard, you could maybe draw a comparison because the players used to love going into camp with Jack Charlton from what I've read and what I've heard from the vast majority of them anyway, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but I still don't think it's comparable. It's not It's not comparable at all. And it, rugby and a rugby World Cup, even if we won it, would never have the cultural impact on Ireland the way Italian 90 did. And I'm there saying, you go. I'm and saying that as a rugby Game fan, set and match. Game set and match. There but, you go. But, but that's not to say it wouldn't be significant. Right, no. I will say that. But the, the reality of all of this is that we've been knocked out of a tournament at the same stage eight times in a row. It is a tournament which, in that sport, we are constantly ranked in the top five. A couple of times we've gone into the tournament slightly lower than that. But for a team like Ireland and for us to be a rugby nation, quote, quote quotation marks there, to have never progressed to the final four is an embarrassment and it Mm. needs to be looked at as an embarrassment and we need to accept it we need to own it and if we're serious about rugby we need to be willing to ask those hard questions about why do we keep falling short and stop with this fucking nonsense this absolute fucking stupidity around like oh well you know they were very brave and it was oh you know the roll of a ball the bounce of a ball all that kind of stuff no no they fell short. 
and they fell short because they weren't good enough. Why weren't they good enough if we're the best in the world? We went yeah. into it ranked number one in the world. Why did we fall short? And it's down to performance. And I think the question Andy Farrell has to answer is, did he do the right thing when he basically played his best players every match? Every The fatigue factor coming in, that is... The, and people try to downplay it and whatever, but I don't think so. I think in a tournament as intense as a World Cup, in a game as intense as rugby, you have to allow for that. And I think when you've got your your big name players going in with over 200 minutes built up very, very quickly. Fatigue is going to set in. Maybe that's it. I don't know, but maybe that's it. But either way, disappointment and uh, yeah, people I think need to take a, a bit of a deeper look at things rather than just calling people heroes and saying we went out on our shield. Exactly. That's a great way to end their first episode back in about six weeks. Um, that was but a we fucking rant and a half. I wasn't expecting that. It was good. It was good. And I want to, I want to, I want you to write it in the, uh, the episode description because it's it's a very good honest description from a rugby fan because it's the only honest thing I've seen online because anything else it's like oh proud boots and but they should be proud and proud this and proud that proud for what like getting to a quarter final I mean that's yeah. patronizing the players as far as I'm concerned yeah, um, that, that, that is the other side of it. I, I, like I think like rugby autobiographies as a general rule of thumb are shit right yeah. <laughs> I've, I've read a lot of them and they've been tough reads because they're just so bland. I'll be like, I mean, they are PR'd with an inch of their life, the vast majority of them. Yeah. Um, I'd be shocked if one of those players does now not autobiography where in there there's some sort of thing around the fact that it was it it's it's not good enough, basically, yeah. to have fallen in a quarterfinal every time. Johnny Sexton genuinely is one of the best rugby players this country has ever produced, that the Northern Hemisphere has ever produced. A world player of the year, he is scintillating as a rugby player. And for him to have never got past a rugby World Cup quarterfinal is a fucking blot on his career that he'll never be. In the same way O'Driscoll has the All, Bar- All Blacks asterisk that he never beat them, Sexton's world has the World Cup one. And that has to be killing him. Absolutely. Killing him. Absolutely. Good way to end it. Um, we're not back for probably another two weeks, but we are back with 300, episode 300 of our long-standing podcast that's been going eight and a half years with a few interruptions here or there in the most recent times. But still, we're not going to stop doing the podcast and we're going to keep doing it yeah. as uh, uh, as frequently as we want. Yeah. But, we're nearly um, 60 in dog years. Absolutely. Yeah. A big, a big, a big interview there. I enjoyed it. Um, we've more. We will have more to come. We have a another podcast joining us, an, an Irish podcast. The very former work colleagues of ourselves um, are doing very, very well. Oh, is that across podcast. the line? Is that happening? That will happen. That will happen in the next two or three weeks. So lovely. Um, so we do have stuff down the pipeline. Don't worry, we will be back. Um, but that this has been what's the story podcast two nine nine. I've been Merrigan Mania. He's been Danjo Murray. And until next time, here it is. Full hearts. Can't lose. Who's sweet? Let's go.